My wife told me once, she was in this Bible study, and there was a quiet, very introverted lady who, who made a comment to the rest of the group. She said, you know, I think there must have been something supernatural happening when Jesus would speak to the crowds because he didn't have a sound system. So I don't know how those people heard him. And I, I'm just really quiet. I cannot imagine Jesus shouting. And this other lady, she's a real outgoing, extroverted lady. She said, well, I don't think there's anything supernatural about that at all. I'm a loud mouth. I ought to think of Jesus having a loud mouth. <laughs> and you see what's happening in the story? Both of these ladies are forging a Jesus in their own image rather than yielding to him as he seeks to make them into his image. They're, they're interpreting who God is through the lenses of their own personal preferences, through the lenses of their own preferences and likes, their own personality. Our sermon series is not the triune God of your personal likes and preferences. Our sermon series is the triune God of what? Of the Bible. And I hope this isn't offensive to you all, but I, I really don't care who you think God is as much as I want to know who the Bible says God is. And I'm sure you have a lot of good ideas, but really, <laughs> I want to know what Scripture says about God first. And we begin three messages tonight on, not all tonight, but we begin three, three weeks of messages on the Holy Spirit, which, which means you're actually moving a bit into some controversial waters. Because when you speak of the Holy Spirit, you can see a lot of different views of how He works, of who He is. I grew up in a tradition whose Trinitarian confession could be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then years later, I was active in a ministry where the Trinitarian Confession could be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's just a lot of different views out there of who the Spirit is. And some of you might have grown up in a tradition like I grew up in, and you might be a little uncomfortable with someone raising their hands in worship. Someone may speak in tongues, and you think that's eerie or freakish. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of different ideas about who the Holy Spirit is. And that leads me to make this exhortation, okay, as we begin talking about the Holy Spirit. And here's the exhortation for us. Let's set aside our personal preferences. Let's set aside our presuppositions. That we may be open to who Scripture teaches us the Holy Spirit is. Okay, so let's just let, set aside whatever you have in your tradition about who the Holy Spirit. If you could just suspend that for three weeks as we study together. And I don't mean discard your tradition because the tradition is very important to us. That's why we read the creeds. But if you could just try to set those aside temporarily to revisit afresh what Scripture says about who God is, I think that would be helpful. Okay? So if that's our exhortation. Um, Stephen is the first martyr. Before he's martyred, he cries out to the Jewish leaders, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to be named among those, right, who resist the Holy Spirit. We want to be open to what he wants to do among us. 
But there are also these really charismatic Christians in Corinth. And though they thought they were so super spiritual, Paul says, you are not spiritual people, you're people of the flesh. We don't want to be named among those either. So let's just suspend our impressions. Let's give up trying to forge a God who meets our preferences and our likes. Let's just see what Scripture has to say and be open to that. Is that okay? Is that agreed? Can we do that? All right. Well, let's pray that God will help us do that. And then we'll read our text for tonight. We want to make a confession to you now, Lord, that we do become uncomfortable with you at times. And we resist when you want us to do something that doesn't match up with our agenda. We also want to confess that we need you and your power to enable us to stop resisting you. And as we begin these three messages, Lord, on your spirit, we ask that you would stir within us deep and profound longings to know you more fully, to know the power of your resurrected Son lived out in our lives, and to be empowered supernaturally for ministry. I want to invite you now, Lord, to convict us where we are resisting you. And to convict us for we are being irresponsible with our experience of you. Move, move among us now, we ask. Be our teacher. And fill us with yourself. Amen. Acts chapter 2, I begin reading in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each, each of us hear them speaking in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I'll stop there for a moment. What does this mean? I'm going to pause here to make sure we have the scene right in our minds. Last week we, 
looked at the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ, and we saw the resurrected Christ speaking to his apostles. He commands them to stay, right? Do not depart from Jerusalem. Stay there and wait for the promise of the Father. This is from chapter 1, verses five, 4 and 5. Wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they know something crazy is about to happen. Okay? They're told to wait, stay in Jerusalem. You're going to be something in the terms of baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just before Jesus is ascended, just before he's taken up, he tells them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now what would all that mean? After Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, where, by the way, He is now, as we await His return as a warrior king who will throw Satan into a pit and reclaim for himself his wounded bride and take her for himself forever and ever. When this ascended Christ comes, that's what's going to happen. But for now, He is there at the right hand of the Father. The disciples saw Him ascend there. And after that, they and about a hundred or so other people were regularly fellowshipping and praying together, probably maybe in the upper room, we're not really sure where they were, but they're in Jerusalem praying and fellowshipping together. At some point, Peter leads them to select a replacement for Judas Iscariot. They only had 11, they needed 12. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and he was led by the Spirit to stand and lead them in choosing a new guy. Matthias is his name. At some point afterwards, they're all together in one place. And then suddenly, we read. Suddenly, all heaven breaks loose, I guess you could say. Suddenly, everything gets really noisy. This is a very boisterous, violent, mystical scene that's taking place. It's visually amazing. These tongues of fire there. It's aurally to the ear audibly amazing there's the sound of the rushing wind there's the speaking in other tongues what does all this mean guys what does this mean what's happening here now the speaking of tongues here this is speaking in other known languages there's also the more controversial speaking in tongues we'll look at that a bit next week what does that mean well come next week um but for now this is the speaking in intelligible languages okay and those who experience this outpouring of the, of the Spirit and the speaking of languages, they, what they're speaking of is the mighty works of God. And why are they having to speak in these other languages? We're told because there are folks there from every nation under heaven. This is Pentecost. The Hebrew festival of weeks took place 50 days, Penta, 50 days after Passover. So what would happen is that people from all over the known world, Jews and, and Gentiles who've been converted to Ju- Judaism, they lived all over the known world. More Jews lived outside of Judea than in Judea. And they would come for the celebration of, Pente- of Passover. And many of them would just stay for the extra month and 10 days or so for the Feast of Weeks, for Pentecost. So there are people from all over the known world gathered there. It's an... It's a public event that takes place. A public event before an international gathering. What does this mean? What does a scene like this mean? It's a shocking moment. 
Those who were there on the scene were bewildered, we read in verse 6. They were amazed and astonished, we see in verse 7. They were amazed and perplexed, verse 12, saying to one another, what does this mean? And that is the question the text gives us. It's the, text, the, the question that really gives voice to the sermon tonight. We're going to ask along with those perplexed and bewildered and amazed bystanders, what does all this mean? We want to know what did this mean back then in those first century Jerusalem streets? And what does the outpouring of the Spirit mean for us today in the 21st century on the streets of Birmingham? What does the, the dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit mean before we go on though let's be reminded of the exhortation set aside your preferences set aside your traditions don't resist the holy spirit we see immediately there is resistance to the holy spirit look at verse 13 whereas in verse 12 everyone says what does this mean others said, mocking, they are filled not with the Spirit, not with the power of God, but with sweet wine. The word in the Greek is glucose. <laughs> like glucose. I thought that was kind of neat. Sweet wine. Um, Alright, they think these people are just drunk. They're mocking them. And sometimes we want to dismiss the amazing, the perplexing, the bewildering stuff that God does and just say they're full of glucose (laughs) they're full of sweet wine those people are crazy they're faking it they're just making that stuff up that person's overly emotional anyway we tend to dismiss the amazing the perplexing and the bewildering the stuff we don't understand the stuff we can't explain the stuff that we have to say what does this mean because we're not sure we understand So be careful that you're not among the mockers. I gotta confess to you, I struggled. I've been struggling a bit. Every now and then, I find myself nervous about what people think about me when they see what I'm reading. Because for the past few weeks, everywhere I go, I have some book on the Holy Spirit with me. I'm sitting at gymnastics in the gym, surrounded by all these adults, right? My daughter's taking gymnastic lessons, and I'm sitting there, and it suddenly occurs to me, I'm reading a book, The subtitle is The Holy Spirit for Today. And I get a little nervous. Oh my gosh, these people might think I'm really crazy. And then I'm reading yesterday in Sanford's Food Court early in the morning. So not that many people are in there. How to be filled with the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozier. Today I'm in this coffee shop. The Holy Spirit is written really big on the cover of the book. And and so I just got convicted and I thought, I'll hold this book up. Firm and sound, like firm and just loud visually for all the people around me. Because, Lord, I don't need to be someone who's ashamed of you having a spirit that dwells inside of us and sometimes does things that makes me ask, what does this mean? So, what's happening here? What does it all mean? Peter stands up to give explanation to what this all means. And the way he answers this question, what does it mean? The way he answers this is by quoting his Bible. He appeals to the Old Testament. He cites Scripture. This is the way we must always answer. What does this mean? 
in reference to the Spirit of God. A lot of people give lots of answers that may have nothing to do with Scripture. What does this mean? Peter says, I'll tell you what it means. And he starts quoting his, his Bible, the Old Testament. So, I want us to look back to the Old Testament just for a bit. If we really want to understand what this means, we need to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And there are so many things I could give you in response to uh, who is the Holy Spirit and what is He doing in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you three tonight, though. Three works of the Holy Spirit that we see happening in the Old Testament. Okay? Then we'll return back to Acts chapter 2. One, creation. We see the Spirit of God as an agent of creation. All right, the first time we see the Holy Spirit in the Bible, second verse, Genesis 1-2. He's right there. All right, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We looked at this the very first night of this sermon series that's now in its seventh week. We looked at God as creator and God as recreator. And we find that when God took Waste and darkness and void make it into something beautiful and something orderly. The Spirit of God was right there as an agent in creation. Job 33, 4 says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Genesis 2, the way God formed humans, the way He made Adam was that He took dust and He, he breathed the breath of life. Now, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for breath, wind, and spirit is the same word. When God breathed His breath, the breath of life, into Adam, it's like He's breathing His spirit into Adam. And in John chapter 20, verse 22, the resurrected Christ breathed on the disciples and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's an echo of creation. So, the Holy Spirit... He's involved in creating. He's an agent of creation. Second thing we see, a, a second thing we see the Holy Spirit doing, divine empowerment. In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon or rushing upon or clothing with power certain individuals to perform a certain specific task. Now, often this is a display of wisdom, with Joseph, with Daniel. Sometimes it's being divinely empowered to work a particular craft, like with a guy named Bezalel, a guy named Aholiab. Sometimes it's to do something in battle. Most of the time, though, when the Holy Spirit would come upon someone, rush upon someone in the Old Testament, it had to do with prophetic speech, speaking on behalf of God. But we need to point out that Divine empowerment in the Old Testament by the Spirit, it's a very limited experience. This only happened at certain times to certain people for certain tasks. It was a very isolated experience. There are many times actually in Israel's history when they felt as though the Spirit of the Lord has just been silent among us. When we looked at the ark narrative, that was one of those seasons 1 Samuel 3, 1 says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And there was no frequent vision. It was a time when the Spirit of God seemed inactive among them. And then, as I said, it only would occur on certain particular individuals. This rushing of the Spirit upon them. 
There's this moment when Moses was in the wilderness. He was really exhausted with all the demands of leading all these people out in the wilderness. God says to him that he's going to take some of the spirit that is on Moses and place that spirit on the 70 elders to help Moses lead the people. And when the spirit came on those people, they prophesied. And Joshua was a little bit jealous for Moses' sake on this. He went to Moses and says, look, Moses, there are other people prophesying. Other people are manifesting the power of the spirit to lead the people. And Moses says this. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them. So we see in Moses this longing that the spirit of God would be spread abroad all of his people. That all of the people of God would be divinely empowered by the spirit. But this is rare. The spirit of God is full of Moses and the 70 elders. That's it. Okay. Spirit of God, active in creation, active in divine empowerment, and active by providing the presence of God. Divine empowerment, and now third, divine presence. We serve a God who wants to be near His people, right? And we see this, obviously, in the incarnation. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that's quite a gesture on God's behalf. Saying, I want to be Near you. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means. God with us. And this is not limited to Jesus. And his incarnation. This desire for God to be with his people. We see him in the garden of Eden. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We see even when. In in Genesis 6. Where God says that his spirit cannot abide with men much longer. For all their disobedience. Still God makes a way to be near to his people. He told Moses build a tabernacle. This portable tent like structure in which he would dwell. And put that tabernacle Moses. Dead center in the midst of the camp of the people. And God was there among them. In the wilderness. He led them as a pillar of cloud by day. Pillar of fire by night. Eventually he associated his presence with at Shiloh, remember the Ark of the Covenant was placed there. And that was said to be the throne of God. The Ark, God's presence would have been associated there with the site in Shiloh. Once they had begun settling the land. Then his presence came into the temple. Once Solomon had built it, his presence dwelled there in Jerusalem as the capital city of his people. This is a God who wants to be near you. Proximate to you. Isaiah says that the presence of God in the wilderness was the Holy Spirit. He says this in Isaiah 63. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139. So the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is associated with the presence of God. The Spirit of God conveys God's presence. But in spite of God's intense desire to be near His people, There were limitations, right? Moses told the people of Israel not to even touch the base of Mount Sinai lest they die. Moses, only one person can go into the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. Only one. And that's the high priest. And him only once a year. There were limitations to the presence of God. His holiness, unsurvivable. Among his people. Close. But only so close. Then there are moments where God makes a departure. 
Ezekiel saw a vision of the temple. He saw the Spirit of God. He saw the presence of God flee the temple. It was before the Babylonians would have destroyed that temple. So there are limitations, a sense of distance between God and His people. This God who wanted to be so close. But as the Spirit of God rushed upon, He came upon certain prophets. He began to give prophetic speech that spoke of a day, a new day that would one day come, a day of new things. Jeremiah writes of a new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. A new covenant when they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Ezekiel once saw a vision of a valley. The valley was full of bones. The bones were the people of God. And into those bones the spirit blew and there was a rattling, a sound of rattling. The bones pieced together. Because one day, God said, I will re-piece together, reconstitute and make my people new. I will dwell among them in new and fresh ways. Isaiah told the people that although today the palace is forsaken, although today the city is deserted, a new day will come when the Spirit is poured out on us from on high and the wilderness will become a fruitful field. And then the prophet Joel said something. And it shall come to pass afterward. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even in the male and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit. This is the passage Peter quotes in Acts 2. In response to the question. What does this mean? Peter is announcing. That Jesus, whom God has made both Lord and Christ, who was crucified but unable to be held by the pangs of death and was resurrected, this Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of God and He has sent His Spirit, inaugurating the final days those prophets spoke about, the last days, the early dawn of that great day of the Lord. And now, now the presence of God has come not to dwell in some portable tabernacle out of the wilderness, not to dwell in some beautiful gold-gilded temple that Solomon built. Now the Spirit of God has come to dwell inside the people of God. The Spirit of God, who was there at creation, hovering over that waste and darkness and void. He is now at work with recreation, right? Re constituting the people of God as the church born of the Spirit. This God who longed to be near His people, to be intimately close with His people, He's now come to dwell not just in some temple that they can go to in the festivals, He's come to dwell inside them. I am close to my wife, closer to her than any other human being, but I cannot be inside her heart, inside her mind. And this God has now sent His Spirit to be that Intimately near to us. And he has come upon, rushed upon, clothed with power, not just certain individuals to speak of his wonder and his beauty. He has come on all flesh, that is all who call upon his name, on daughters, on sons, on old men, on young men, on servants and slaves, doesn't matter. He has come upon all those who would call upon the name of the Lord and to, to enable them to speak of His mighty deeds, to enable them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, 
and to the end of the earth. This is what Pentecost means. Pentecost is this inaugural moment. Unique in many ways, the way the crucifixion is unique. The resurrection, the ascension is unique. The outpouring of God's Spirit, the initial outpouring of His Spirit. In fulfillment of all those prophecies, it spoke of a day when God would be universally available to those who call on His name. Now, it's happened. Suddenly, it has happened. And we live in this new day. This epic changing moment now we experience. This is like the epicenter of the earthquake. And we are now part of the tremors all throughout history as it unfolds. Divinely empowered to speak and to witness to the mighty deeds of God. This is what Pentecost means. So what does that mean for you right now? you're going to class at Jeff State, as you're you know, working at Gap, as you're walking across, across the quad somewhere. What does that mean for you? And what does it mean for us as a church? Paul writes in his letter to the, the first letter to the, to the Corinthians, he writes that, uh, that we, our bodies, are actually individual temples of the Holy Spirit. And he writes that we collectively as the church are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we know from this text that we have a mission, a job to do. God is interested in reaching the nations. He promised Abraham, through your seed shall all the nations be blessed. Remember back in the Tower of Babel scene? Remember when the people were given new languages who had break them up? God is loose in the world through his church. Us as many temples, the church is one collective temple. And he's got a job to do. And this temple, it's not a stationary temple, is it? This is a temple with legs. And our God wants to move. There's a mission to fulfill. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this spirit... An agent of creation in the Old Testament. He's now at work recreating people. And He divinely empowers us as He dwells within us to speak of this new creation. Think of the possibilities of being indwelled by this God. You know, we've been thinking and talking, studying who God is for, this is our seventh week, Think of this creating, recreating God of Genesis 1. He dwells within you. Think of this unmanageable, uncontrollable God that the Philistines and the Israelites just couldn't stand before when they had the ark among them. This God dwells in you. Think of the God of Isaiah 40 through 55, the Holy One of Israel, the great God King of God's people. He dwells within you. Do our lives look as though that is true? Does your life reflect that you actually are an individual temple of this God's presence? And what about we as the church? Can you really tell the difference between the church and the world when you look? Moses said to God in a prayer once, 
It is by you going with us that we are distinguished by all the other peoples of the earth. Your presence among us, that's what distinguishes us from all the other people of the earth. Is that distinguishing quality of God's presence true for you? Next week, we're going to look at myths and misconceptions of the Holy Spirit. There are many. The week after that, we're going to study how the Holy Spirit empowers us to fight sin, to resist sin. And I think many of us just assume, well, we're human, so you know we're just going to sin all the time. And you know, I'm a Christian, so I'm forgiven, and you know, I got the struggle that I'm always struggling with, and I'll just never be free from that. But you know, God loves me, He's forgiven me. You are indwelled by this recreating God who says He gives you fruit of self control, the fruit of peace, the fruit of joy. That's week three. Tonight, as we begin speaking of the Spirit here at UCF, I want to encourage you to do four things, okay? By way of application, just from our look, our, our time here in Acts chapter 2. For one, wait. That's what the apostles had to do, right? They had to wait. So I want you to place yourself in a posture of waiting. That means that you're actually anticipating something, right? That you're anticipating God to do something in you. But I think a lot of us rush into the moment. The disciples were ready to rush in. And Jesus says, no, you need to wait. So wait. All right? Be patient as we begin to study who the Spirit of God is. Second, pray. They're all gathered together, devoting themselves to prayer. And throughout the book of Acts, we see when people pray and seek God's power, the Spirit of God comes on them in a fresh and strong way, enabling them for ministry. There's a connection in Scripture between prayer and the receiving of God's presence in a strong and moving way. So wait and pray. Third, obey. Acts 5.32, He gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. There are a lot of tricks about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit out there. Well, you have to raise your hands like this, and you have to repeat after me, or you have to... I mean, there are all these things that I've been told, actually. But Acts 5.32, He gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. Wait, pray, and obey. And lastly, believe. I'm sharing these things with you. Wait, pray, and obey. Because I'm assuming that you will be entering into a time with me where we are expecting God to do something strong in our hearts individually and through us as a ministry, corporately. Believe. You know, the number of people who are gathered together on whom the Spirit came in Acts 2 is about the exact number of people who are here in the room right now. And look at what happened. (laughs) I mean, that's inspiring to me. All of you in your lovely faces, praying, waiting, obeying, think of the possibilities of being indwelled by the power of this recreating God King. Coming into us as a ministry. Think of what He can do. Believe.
Now, often when people preach in the Holy Spirit, and there, there's an altar call, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong at all. But in the spirit of this application of wait, I want to encourage you, in your response tonight, just place yourself in a position of waiting and praying and obeying. All right? I'm going to read to you a, a passage of Scripture from Ezekiel to close. A passage where Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones. And many of you may feel that you're among the dry, dead heap of bones. And what happens to those bones is pretty amazing. You'll hear about the breath, the breath, the breath. Remember, that word for breath is also the word for spirit. You'll see what the spirit, the breath, does to the bones. If you're like me, you're going to want your dry bones to be transformed into what happens in Ezekiel 37. But I think that happens to people who have a wise, prayerful patience about them. Okay? Sometimes there are irresponsible ways to respond to the Holy Spirit. We'll look at those next week. But I know it's a biblical way to respond. And that is that you wait, you pray, and you obey and believe. Stand with me. We're going to read Ezekiel 37. And I want to encourage you to close your eyes and visualize this. The prophet, prophet Ezekiel is a very visual prophet. This is a vision. He sees the word behold and seeing that happens a lot. So I want you to see the vision with him, okay? So close your eyes with me as I read. And watch what happens. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. 
Therefore, therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, for those among us tonight who say, Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. God, I pray for those among us who feel the dry brittleness of their spiritual lives, Lord, that you would breathe your breath fresh and strong into them. We place ourselves before you in waiting with patience, but in prayer for longing that you would give us more of who you are that you would empower us, God, to speak, to declare, to bear, give witness to who you are. We want to be people distinct from the rest of the world by virtue of your presence within us. So be teaching us, Lord, what this means. And I pray we would respond as you lead us. Lord, you know who needs to hear from you tonight and what they need to hear. So we ask that you speak. We know who among us needs to be touched in some special, strong way. You you know who those people are, Lord. So we ask that you touch them. There are those among us who need your conviction. So convict us, Lord. For those of us who disbelieve in your love, convince us. Do your work, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son.